Well, this morning I'm going to be continuing our studies in the Gospel according to Luke. We're looking just at four verses this morning, Luke 16, 14 to 17, but uh, it really ties closely with, uh, with verses 1 to 13. So I'm just going to read uh, all the way from, uh, from uh, verses 1 to 17. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his masters one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also, so one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then our passage for this morning. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, we praise you for this passage of Scripture. For these four verses that you in your sovereign decree have declared and providentially made so that we would hear it this morning. And sovereign God, we approach this passage in the confidence that you will accomplish that for which you have sent this message. Lord, that you will advance your kingdom in the hearts of your people through the proclamation of your word. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit. Grant us, we pray, understanding. Lord, grant us belief. Grant us obedience. And grant us repentance. And help us, Lord, we pray, to worship you and to love you 
for you are worthy of all our adoration and all of our devotion. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Back when I was in school, I remember that some of my teachers used to use a behavior chart in order to control our behavior. At least in my case, at times that was challenging. And the teachers would have a chart that would have all of our names and next to our names they'd have little sections and, and they would have a, when you, when you did something right, you'd get a star next to your name. And, and that star, that was like gold dust. We would say, oh, I really, I really want that star. But some teachers would actually put a, a black mark next to your name if you did the wrong thing. And for many of us, the, the black marks outweighed the stars. Now, such a behavior trick can, can be a, a useful tool for teachers in order to try to control the behavior of their students. This is, they don't have all the means of disposal that their parents do, and so they, this is sometimes what they have to do. But I wonder, what would it be like if God had a behavior chart for you? What about a behavior chart for you as a parent? How many gold stars would you have? How many black marks would you have? Or as a husband, or wife, or as a friend, as an employee, as a human being? What would your behavior chart look like? Well, the reality is that you'd have countless black marks next to your name. You'd have countless black marks next to your name just for today. You've only been up for a few hours. But the list of your sins is already long when you understand what God's law really says. Now, a lot of people are self-deceived. A lot of people wrongly conclude that their stars would outweigh their black marks or that their stars would, would outnumber their black marks. And in many cases, people make the wrong conclusion that because they're experiencing temporal blessing, temporal prosperity, that they are somehow in God's good books. And here's the astonishing thing. When I say this, I'm talking about those who claim to be Christians. The so-called prosperity gospel has spread like cancer through the church all over the world. And so people believe that Jesus came to give them wealth. They have little awareness of their guilt or the real reason for the incarnation of Christ. You don't need to be saved in order to want prosperity. Everybody wants prosperity. So the so-called prosperity gospel is, is appealing to what people already want. And I'm not just talking about Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and their followers. Many, even in churches where the gospel is preached, where the word of God is proclaimed, are still influenced by this. They, they've still imbibed this poison because it's everywhere. It's just a part of our culture. It's really just the American or the, the Canadian dream churchified. And so we often tend to interpret our circumstances based on, on 
whether we feel we're being blessed. And the flip side of that is some people, when they're going through trials, they think that God is, is somehow now angry at them and is now punishing them. Again, it's a failure to understand the reality of the gospel. It's a failure to understand that Christ has borne the curse for us, that Christ has taken the punishment for us. Now, it's true that God sometimes chastens his people. He does chasten those he loves as, as sons and daughters. But the sense in which, which again, our, our temporal circumstances are, a, are an accurate gauge of God's perspective of us is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. But again, it's just, it, it really, when we do this, it's really, when we, we strive for these things, these temporal blessings, really just showing that, that, that we don't understand the, the gospel and, and really who God is. And all the blessings that we've received in Christ. Benjamin Franklin once said that money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. He said that the more a man has, the more he wants. And instead of filling a vacuum, it makes one. Now I get what, what Franklin was saying here. But the reality is that our attitude towards money doesn't create the vacuum. It reveals the vacuum. It reveals the vacuum that's already there. Because the, the truth is, the less that a man has, the more he wants. Here's what I mean. The problem with most people is not that they want too much, but that they're too easily satisfied. So people try to fill up a spiritual hole with something that can never satisfy. Trying to fill up a spiritual hole with material possessions only serves to blind you to your real need. Only serves to make you think that you've got more stars next to your name than black marks. And for, for many people, they... They, they, they still have those black marks because they've never really turned to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Now, all of this follows closely with what we saw in our passage last week in the parable of the dishonest manager or the, the shrewd steward. Where Jesus explained in, in Luke 16, 13 that you cannot serve God and money. However, in that passage, as we saw, it's a tricky passage, but, but Jesus was teaching that we can learn from unbelievers. They strive for temporal and temporary rewards. And we learn from them not in striving for the same things as they do, but as we who have received the gospel of light should strive too. Yet we strive for eternal rewards. And so we seek to invest our time and our talents and our treasure in the kingdom of God. And then to the degree that we understand the glory of Christ and the riches of relationship with him, we'll do just that. For those who don't really know who Christ is, will be content with whatever this life has to offer. They'll live for worldly wealth, but again, worldly wealth can be a dangerous distraction. Again and again in Luke's Gospel account, we have heard Jesus' warnings about the danger of riches. In the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus pronounced woe on the rich, saying, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Luke 6.24 In the parable of the soils, Jesus warned about the seed being choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Luke 8.14. In the parable of the rich fool, Jesus warned about the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Luke 
21. You seeing a theme here? And later we'll see in Luke as well, in the account of the rich young ruler who rejected Jesus because he loved his money more. Luke 18, 23. And then he's contrasted with Zacchaeus, the former tax collector who gives away half of his possessions out of devotion to Jesus. Luke 19, 8. And we see this principle again in the, in the second half of Luke 16 with the, the rich man and Lazarus. So here in the middle of Luke 16, we have four verses that really join the parable of the shrewd steward with that of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who enjoyed the pleasures of this life and, and ignored the poor man, Lazarus, who was outside his gate. As you know, the, the poor man went to Abraham's bosom. The, the poor man went to heaven, whereas the rich man went to Hades. He was condemned to hell. And as we'll see, the Pharisees who sought to justify themselves before men are actually guilty before God. The law that they presumed to teach others actually condemned them. Even the, the jots and the tittles, even the smallest strokes of the law revealed the big black marks next to their names. So then this morning we're going to see that the Pharisees stand guilty in verses 14 and 50. And that the law still stands in verses 16 and 17. So the Pharisees failed to understand the law and they failed to understand their guilt before the law. Obedience to the ethical demands of the law is demonstrated here in giving to the poor. Love is the fulfilling of the law. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Luke 10, 27. And next week, Lord willing, we're just going to look at, at one verse. Very controversial verse. Luke 16, 18. That presents an example that, to demonstrate the Pharisees' misunderstanding and misapplication of the law as Jesus corrects their wrong teaching on divorce. So then, verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees stand guilty. Well, now the focus here in verse 14 shifts back to the Pharisees. Remember that in the beginning of chapter 16, it was Jesus was speaking directly to the disciples. Well, now it seems the Pharisees had heard what Jesus was saying to his disciples, and they didn't like it. In teaching that you cannot serve God and money, they understood that he was indicting them. But rather than stop and examining their hearts and considering Jesus' words, they instead ridiculed him. They scoffed at him. The term literally means they, they, they turned up their noses at him. Imagine the audacity to turn up your nose at the Lord Jesus Christ and His teaching. But the reality is, people do this all the time. And some of those people are sitting right in this room. And it speaks to all of us at some time or another. The Pharisees sought to discredit Jesus and to undermine His authority, to undermine His influence. And so instead of doing that, though, they, they just highlighted their guilt. To paraphrase Shakespeare's Hamlet, methinks he doth protest too much. We've seen their character of the Pharisees again and again and again. But Luke here gives us the inside scoop. They were lovers of money. Now this is the first time that we've heard this direct charge made against the Pharisees. But when you think about it, it actually makes total sense when you consider what Jesus had, so when Jesus says to him in verse 15, he says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. 
Jesus here is contrasting justification before men and justification before God. Again, men are too easily satisfied, at least when it comes to themselves and their supposed righteousness. The Pharisees justified themselves before men. And again, we've seen this, this of them again and again and again. This is typical. This is what the Pharisees did. Their wealth here then were a means of ju- was a means of them justifying themselves in order to prove to others what they thought they were. The Pharisees loved power. The Pharisees loved prestige. The Pharisees loved possessions. And all three come together in an unholy triad of in the self-righteous hearts of the Pharisees. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 16.10 Now we know that wealth can be a blessing in the life of a mature Christian. But more often, as I explained earlier in the scriptures, wealth is presented as a danger. As a danger. Psalm 62.10 warns, if, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. But those who love the Lord and those who love others will invest their wealth in the advance of the kingdom of God. But again, the Pharisees were lovers of money. Now, in Roman culture, wealth was seen primarily as a means to gain status, as a means to gain honor. It was the same thing in Jewish culture. Flip back with me for a moment to, to Luke chapter 14. It's from a few weeks ago. Look at verses 7 to 11. In this passage here, Jesus told the Pharisees not to choose the place of honor. To humble themselves and sit the lower part of the table. And in verses 12 to 14, he says, When you have a banquet... Don't invite the wealthy people. Don't invite the, the honorable people who will um, who will be able to repay you. But rather invite the poor. Invite the, the lame and the blind. Invite the lowly to your table and you will be rewarded by God. Now look at 14 verses 15 to 24. Here we have the Jesus teaching that the Pharisees are the ones who are actually absenting themselves from the Lord's banquet. Remember, they said that they would they would come when the, the, the master sent out his servant in to, to invite them all. They said, yeah, we'll come. But when he sent the servant back again to say, okay, everything's now prepared. It's ready. Come to the banquet. One by one, they made excuses. They absented themselves from the table. And so, so the master then sends the servant out again into the, the streets of the city and to, to bring in those that would have been considered lowly. And even those aren't enough. So he says, now go outside of the city and preferably to the, to the Gentiles and bring the Gentiles now into the table. And so those who were honorable in the eyes of society were on the outside. Those who were dishonored are on the inside. It's the lowly who will feast at the table with the Lord. And so again, this is, this is throughout Luke, but, but the reality is that the people haven't changed. It's the same thing in every culture. When we were downtown yesterday, somebody drove by in a, in a Lamborghini. Now, depending on the model, Lamborghini costs about $250,000. You go from zero 
to 100 in under 30 seconds. They have a top speed of around 350 kilometers an hour. Now, I'm not going to say that it's sin to own a Lamborghini. Okay? But the question is, it's a heart matter. Why would you really want a Lamborghini when an old clunker can get you from A to B just as well? And according to the speed laws, at the same speed. Why do you want a Lamborghini? Is it for status? Why would you want to buy that car? People often buy cars and clothes as status symbol. Now, people who don't have an eternal perspective want to look wealthy as much as they want to be wealthy. Let's just not pick on that Lamborghini driver. You and I can have the same attitude with our minivans and SUVs. We can be the same way with Lululemon and Patagonia and and Carhartt. We can have the same attitude with our iPhones and our Androids. We can seek status with stuff in this life just as much as the Pharisees. It's all going to be gone. Like in the Jack Johnson song with the same name, gone. Look at all those fancy clothes, but these could keep us warm just like those. What about your soul? Is it cold? Is it straight from the mold or ready to be sold? And cars and phones and diamond rings, bling, bling. These are only removable things. What about your mind? Does it shine? Are there things that concern you more than your time? Gone, going, gone, everything. Everything is going to be gone. And so where do you set your mind? Where do you set your heart? That's the issue. That's the bottom line with your stuff. Again, it's not about whether you can can own a, a new model of an iPhone or or Lululemon or whatever. It, what, like it, it's it's not about whether you own that stuff or not. It's about your heart towards those things. But be very very careful that these things are not a distraction that keep you from understanding who Jesus is and the, and keeping you from loving Him and loving others. Jesus further indicts the Pharisees at the end of verse 15. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. It, it, the things that the, the culture values are not just worthless to God, they're an abomination. He abominates them. But like the proponents of the so-called prosperity gospel, the Pharisees concluded that their wealth was, was evidence of God's blessing. They may have been able to fool others, but God knows their hearts. God cannot be Fooled. No matter what they look like on the outside, they are whitewashed tombs. God knows their hearts. Their hearts are self-righteous and selfish through and through. So now let's look at verses 16 and 17. We've seen that the Pharisees stand condemned by the law, and now we see that the law still stands. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John... With the arrival of John the Baptist on the scene, we have a, uh, we have a, a, a new era. A new time has come in, in redemption history. John was the, the last representative of the law and the prophets, representing the Old Testament. Verse 16 continues, Since then, since the coming of John the Baptist, the good news of the kingdom has been preached. 
So then John forms a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He forms a bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's what the Testament is. John is then a transitional figure between the era of promise and the era of fulfillment. John announced that the kingdom of God was at hand, and then he announced the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of the new covenant. Again, John is a transitional figure between the old and the new era. Well, this last phrase in verse 16 is, is tricky. He, everyone forces his way into it. Now, the word that's translated here, forces, in the ESV is, is only used a couple of times in the scriptures. The other is in Matthew 11, which is likely a different context and, and addresses a different issue. A lot of ink has been spilled by commentators trying to figure out what Jesus is saying here. So we have, again, this, this idea, this, this, the newness in John, this, this message of the kingdom, and then everyone is forcing his way into it. What's, what's Jesus saying here? Is Jesus speaking positively or is he speaking negatively? Well, some suggest that, that all act violently against the kingdom. That this, the kingdom is more similar to, to what Jesus says in Matthew 11, that the kingdom is suffering violence. That there's, but this really doesn't fit the context of what Jesus is saying here. Some suggest that Jesus is speaking about those who try to forcefully advance the kingdom, like the zealots, the religious zealots who advocated violence. But that's antithetical to Jesus' teaching. It could be that they were forcefully urged to come in. Well, okay, that does fit the context. This is a call to repentance and faith. But I believe this is an interpretation that, that fits the immediate context better. Remember what Jesus has just said about the shrewd steward. He was zealous for, as he was zealous for earthly dwellings, believers should be zealous for eternal dwellings. Jesus here is urging people, I believe, to press on and to press into the kingdom. I believe he's calling people to single-minded devotion to God. As Jesus said in Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus here is calling us to holy sweat. He's, he's calling us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He's calling us to whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Jesus is saying that, that wherever you go, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3.17 I want to revisit my illustration of the hockey player from last week for just a moment. I don't know if I communicated this clearly enough, but one of the advantages, advantages of, of sequential expositional preaching is that you can come back and revisit and clarify and co correct things from previous messages. I really want to be clear here. My illustration was, was of, of a hockey player who strived for, for a temporary prize, for a, for a trophy, and for accolades, and, and those sorts of things. But, but I want to be clear, it's, it's possible to be a hockey player for the glory of God. We need godly hockey players. Just like we need godly teachers and godly carpenters and godly electricians and godly lawyers. The question that is, is not, again, it's like with your, with your riches, it's not, it's not so much whether you have them or not, it's what you're doing with them. It's what you're doing with them that reveals what your heart 
really is and where your heart really lies. Question is, are you investing your time and your talents and your treasure in heaven? Are you putting God first in everything? Again, it's not just having a hierarchy, but it's God first in everything in your life. But God, putting God first in your career. It's about putting God first in every relationship. It's about putting God first with your wealth. It's about God putting God first with your Christian service and with your giving. As we'll see a little bit later, you can serve God and give in the church for fleshly ambition, for accolades, and for the applause of men. So what does all of this have to do with the law? What has everything to do with the law? Jesus has just said that the law and the prophets were until John. Yet he says in verse 17 that it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It says similarly in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So the dot here is, or, or tittle, is a small projection that is on some Hebrew letters. Smaller than the, the little line on, on a, a hand-printed A that distinguishes it from an O. It's a little tiny dot. Jesus is saying that the law stands even down to the smallest details. The law pointed to Jesus Christ. That is the, the law and the prophets of the era of promise. And then with the coming of Christ, we have fulfillment in the, in the arrival of Christ. So Jesus showed us in his incarnation what obedience to the law looks like. And he shows us that we are all guilty before the law. Jesus shows us that we need him. In the new covenant, we are in a new era, but God's moral standards remain the same. Now, some people hear Jesus' teaching and wrongly conclude that Jesus is against the law. Rather, it's just the exact opposite. Jesus has just said that it's the exact opposite. Jesus never cast doubt on the validity of the moral law. Rather, it was the Pharisees' interpretation and application of the law that Jesus criticized and condemned. Jesus, again, shows us what obedience to the law looked like. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You've heard people say that, that, that handguns don't kill people, that people kill people. You can, you can have a gun and it's a useful tool for, for hunting and whatnot, but, but if, but if you don't use it in the right way, someone's gonna get hurt, someone's gonna get killed. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law shows us that we have no righteousness of our own. It shows us our guilt and our need for a savior. Listen to J.C. Ryle. The law is intended to show us God's holiness and our sinfulness, to convince us of our sin and to lead us to Christ to show us how to live after we have come to Christ and to teach us what to follow and what to avoid. So Jesus also uses the law so that, that we'll find, have a true friend to his, that we'll, we'll find it a true friend to our soul, Ryle says. So it establishes the Christian and it will always say, the Christian will always say, I delight in the law of the Lord after the inward man, Romans 7.22. So then what is the law about? The law 
is all about love. The law is about love for God. It's about love for people. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, are summed up in Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So in the, the moral law of God, written in stone by the hand of God, in the first table deals with a relationship with God, and the second table, a relationship with man. The first table is about loving God. The second table is about loving man. The law shows us that we need Christ. And the law shows us to live once we've received Christ. But the law is powerless to help us. We, we still need Christ. The law can't make you obey. The law just shows you that you need to obey. We need Christ. We need Christ's forgiveness for our failures and we need his strength for obedience. The law shows us that. But the Pharisees, in loving money, disobeyed the law. That's what Jesus is saying here. You, you are lawbreakers. You claim to be keepers of the law, teachers of the law, but you break the law because you are lovers of money. You do not love people. And you'll think, see this especially when we, when we get to the, the, the story at the, at the end of Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. The Pharisees are the rich man. The Pharisees who, who should have used their wealth, so the rich man who should have used his wealth to make friends with Lazarus, the beggar at his gate, instead uses it to serve himself. Like the Pharisees. As Alistair Begg says, instead of giving wealth to get friends, they use their friends to get wealth. The Pharisees will be condemned to Hades unless they repent. Again, Jesus has just talked about using worldly money to make friends in heaven but instead the Pharisees were friends of money. Now, people think about how they look to other people. That's, that's very important to us. We should be more concerned about how we look towards God. People want to look loving. But the law shows people that they're not loving. Now, some who want to look loving are going to do things in order to give that appearance. People don't just buy stuff to get status. People give stuff away to get status too. The Pharisees gave stuff away to get status. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus' main teaching is to show the ethic of the kingdom of God. And Jesus shows again and again how the Pharisees got it wrong and how we are to get it right. He admonishes in chapter 6, 1 to 3. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, in the streets, they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. For your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 4. The Pharisees were investing their time and their talents and their treasure in earthly possession, in earthly praise, in earthly position, in earthly pleasure, in the present, all in the present. Now listen carefully. You should seek possessions. You should seek praise. You should seek position. You should seek pleasure. But you should seek heavenly possessions heavenly praise, heavenly position, and heavenly pleasure. 
Again, we're too easily satisfied with the things of this life. We're, we're told to, to, not, to not set our minds on the things of this life, but that earthly treasures where, where moth and rust and destroy and the thief comes and steals, but rather to lay up treasures in heaven for where our heart is, so where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Make investments in heaven and thereby set your heart on heaven. Invest in eternal life. Things of this life are passing away. First John 2, 15, 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the, from the Father, but from the world. The world's passing away along with its desires. Whatever does of the will of God abides forever. So then God calls to give, not for show, but out of love towards him and love towards others. God calls to serve, again, not for show, not to earn points, but out of devotion to God, out of love for God and those who we would serve for his sake. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13.3, if I give away all I have, if I deliver, my, deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Nothing. And we know that it wasn't just the Pharisees. We know that we all lack love. We know that but for the grace and mercy of God, we, like them, would have big black marks next to our names. We know that even, even if we were to stop doing all the selfish things that, that we have always done, we, we know that we could never undo the wrong that we've done. We, we know that we, we can't change our behavior. You, you can't change your behavior and you cannot earn your way into heaven. There are not enough stars in the sky where they be placed next to your name for earn your way into heaven. There's not enough good deeds that can undo the bad that you've done. It can't be outnumbered. It can't be outweighed. It's only through Jesus Christ. It is only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who, who did have an infinite number of stars next to his name. The one who placed all the stars in the sky and knows them by name, took on human flesh and dwelt in the midst of a sinful creation, surrounded by sin, yet never sinned. Never once. Not just in deed, but in, in word or in thought. Everything that he did was out of love for the Father and love for his neighbor. And that love took him all the way to the cross. And love for the Father and love for his bride took him all the way to the cross where he suffered as the sin as the, the sin bearer, as the law breaker, as you and I are sinners and law breakers. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. The father extinguished his wrath on his son in our place. That's the only thing. That's the only thing that, that could wipe out all of the black marks Next to your name. That's the only thing that could, could give you enough stars next to your name. You can't earn your way into heaven, but Jesus did it for you. 
theologian John Stott, when he passed away, he had a, a friend and a, an associate who had really been mentored by Stott and was, was, a, he was a good friend of John Stott's. And, and when he died, he, he, he had bequeathed to his friend this book, I believe it was entitled The Book of My Deeds. And so this, this, this big bound book that, that was, a, was a, a thick notebook that they thought was this, man thought it was like it was all the things that, that Stott had done. But when he sat down and opened the book and began to read, he found the book was empty. There was nothing in the book. One is that all of his deeds, all of his sin had been wiped out. All the black marks next to his name had been erased, had been covered over by the blood of Christ. And if you were a Christian, that is true of you as well. You have no black marks next to your name. You only have gold stars because of the grace of Jesus Christ. The Knox Bible says of, of Luke 16, 16, the kingdom of heaven is preached and, and all who will press their way into it. They press their way into the kingdom of heaven. Are you pressing your way into the kingdom of heaven, not as, as one who could ever earn the kingdom of heaven through your works, but as one who has had the kingdom of heaven earned for you by the works of Jesus Christ. Are you pressing your way into the kingdom, pursuing righteousness with all that is in you, with the power of the Holy Spirit in you, guided by the word of God? Or are you like the Pharisees? scoffing at Jesus. There's really only two roads. Only two roads. Pressing in or scoffing. Which road are you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the redemption that we have received in Jesus Christ. The God-man, God the Son, truly God, truly man, who lived the life we could never live and died the death we deserved to die so that we could become the righteousness of God. Help us, I pray, for the glory of your name to press into the kingdom of heaven. Lord, to keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus Christ as he kept his eyes fixed firmly on the joy that awaited him in heaven. Lord, help us to look to Jesus as we Look forward to being with him in heaven. Our greatest treasure, our greatest joy. Lord, help us to have a heavenly perspective. Help us to understand the eternal realities so that the things of this life can assume their, their proper place in subjection to Jesus as tools that you give us in order to glorify your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.